The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even though our charge is to ensure that policing is constitutional and lawful, we're here to tell you that you need to do more than just tell your officers to abide by the law. Because if that's all you're telling them to do, it leaves the door open for a lot of harmful behavior and a lot of um, behavior that will cross that line from legal to illegal. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is a Lawfare podcast, August 4th, 2023. On July 27th, the Justice Department announced a sprawling civil rights investigation known as a pattern or practice investigation into the city of Memphis and the Memphis Police Department. The announcement came just weeks after the department's Civil Rights Division released a report of a similar investigation into abuses at the Minneapolis Police Department. Both investigations were motivated, at least in part, by the murder of black men at the hands of police, Tyree Nichols in Memphis and George Floyd in Minneapolis. In a recent article for Lawfare about the Minneapolis report, and another report looking at the Louisville Metro Police Department, Christy Lopez wrote, As with past police investigations, the abuse these reports document is chilling, partly in its frequency, and perhaps even more so in conveying how casually abuse can occur in policing. And yet she remained hopeful, writing that the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, quote, heralded what could be a new era in police reform. I sat down with Christy, a professor from practice at Georgetown Law and former deputy chief in the special litigation section of the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department, to talk about her extensive experience conducting pattern or practice investigations into police departments and negotiating consent decrees. She spoke with me about the history of these investigations stretching back to the Rodney King beating, the common trends of police abuse that pattern or practice investigations find, and whether or not we're in the midst of a broader reckoning with ideas of policing and public safety. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 4th, a new era in police reform with Christy Lopez. So Christy, I wanted to start with the most recent news, the announcement from the Justice Department that it has opened a civil pattern or practice investigation to the city of Memphis and the Memphis Police Department. Um, so first, I just wanted to get our listeners on the same page. Could you remind us what motivated this announcement? I'm speaking particularly of the case of Tyree Nichols. I do think it's fair to say that this case, this investigation would not have been launched if Tyree Nichols had not been killed by members of Memphis PD's Scorpion Unit although the timing of the announcement indicates that there it's not a direct it's not as direct a response as we have seen in some other cases but certainly uh that is a case where um it was a it was it was a uh beating death caused by Memphis PD and for many of us who have been doing this work for quite a long time one of the things that made it really chilling was how uh, similar it was to the types of um, abusive practices we have seen from similar units um, for decades now, perhaps made more salient for people and more obvious to people because of the availability of, of video recordings. But uh, Tyree Nichols was stopped by members of the Scorpion unit uh, purportedly for reckless driving, although the department tells us they haven't been able to confirm that he was, in fact, driving recklessly. He uh, initially tries to ask some questions about why he's being stopped, is clearly afraid. He runs from the vehicle. They chase him. They're, before he runs, they, they pepper spray him. 
he runs from the vehicle. He's not very far from his home. He appears to be running home. And they eventually, officers eventually catch up with him near to where he lives and just begin beating him brutally. You hear Tyree Nichols screaming for his mother, apparently hoping that she'll come to the scene. He's very near his home at that point. The officers continue to beat him. The beating is caught on video footage, both on the officer's body-worn cameras, as well as uh, some pole cameras that are nearby. And then you watch as Tyree Nichols loses consciousness. He's leaned up against the car, the patrol car, and officers uh, take pictures of of Tyree Nichols and, and circulate them. One officer does. But there's no apparent attempt to provide him medical care. Uh, eventually, other officers from other agencies come on scene. EMTs come on scene. Eventually, he is provided some medical care and transported to a hospital where he dies a few days later. Thank you for for setting that up. I know it's difficult to hear and to recount, um, but so important to you know establish the stakes um, and the the prevalence of these incidents. I think at the outset, I think it's it's an amazing opportunity to speak to you with someone uh, someone with such intimate knowledge of these pattern or practice investigations. So I would also first like to set the scene of what what are these investigations? You we've heard them a few times now, especially with <laughs> greater frequency in the Biden administration. But what does this term mean, pattern or practice investigation? A pattern or practice investigation by the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division is an investigation that focuses on the entire police agency, sometimes a unit within the agency, but quite often as here, it focuses on the entire agency rather than just one officer. The division also has a criminal section that will uh, at times criminally prosecute individual officers and certainly private plaintiffs can bring lawsuits, civil lawsuits against individual officers, as um, Tyree Nichols' family is, is doing here. It's more difficult for private plaintiffs to bring lawsuits against an entire city age, uh, uh, police department and more difficult still to do what the Department of Justice can do through these pattern or practice investigations, which is uh, obtain what they call injunctive relief if they demonstrate that there is, in fact, a pattern or practice of constitutional violations or violations of federal statutory rights. And injunctive relief allows you to obtain a remedy that's not simply money, which, of course, can be important to compensate people for their their losses. But injunctive relief is really forward-looking and seeks to change the the practices and the policies of the agency to change how its police officers conduct themselves going forward. And what's the typical timeline look like? I know in the case of the announcement of the uh, pattern of practice investigation into the Memphis Police Department, as part of the announcement, uh, the Justice Department mentioned, for example, they've they conducted an initial review. So, would you be able to walk us from the beginning stages, you know, into the into the meat of it, and then what is then the result of these these investigations in terms of a report and you know, especially the negotiation of a consent decree? The actual the timeline for what I'm about to set out really varies. The shortest investigation I'm aware of is was our investigation of the Ferguson Police Department, which took six months. Um, some investigations can take years. Most of them during the Obama administration were kept at about one year. Um, more recently, the investigations we saw of Louisville and of, um, Minneapolis were closer to two. But that can vary for a lot of reasons, uh, the complexity of the issue, the size of the department, as well as just, just the available resources. Um, for the Department of Justice. Essentially, the way that an investigation will start is with what they call preliminary inquiry. The department obtains information, you know, alleging violations of individuals' constitutional rights. Uh, this may, they may receive that information in, in the form of a investigative, uh, a series of investigative reports through, you know, newspapers or magazines. Um, they may receive a complaint from a advocacy organization that compiles individual stories of what they've experienced, um, or maybe something like this, where their attention is focused on an agency. Their attention may have already been focused on on Memphis for any number of reasons, but oftentimes, what brings a department to the attention of the civil rights division is um, an, an incident like like Tyree Nichols beating death. And once they have that information, they will, you know, there are, there are a lot of different departments that they're probably looking at the, at the same time, and they will be looking at whether there appears to be a pattern 
um, or a practice of violations? Is, is this just a one-off thing, an aberrational unit or an officer, or is this really something that looks like it's pervasive throughout the department? Based on a lot of, of criteria that really go to sort of how the department wants to use its limited resources, the Civil Rights Division may decide to try to uh, seek to open a actual formal investigation of the agency based on what the preliminary inquiry showed them. And if they do, uh, you will you'll you'll um, have an announcement uh, akin to what we saw um, Kristen Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark provide the other day. Um, where they formally announced to the public that this investigation is ongoing. They will generally talk with the city leadership right before and then um, right, right before that announcement, and then the investigation is launched. They'll bring in a number of investigators, experts in police practices, statisticians, data scientists, and they will uh, look at all the areas that they've set out. Here they've, they've set out uh, stop searches and arrest, excessive force, and racially discriminatory policing. That's the process that can take a really long time. They, they also, of course, talk to people in that area. They've already held, in this case, um, they already held a um, community meeting via Zoom, I believe, last night. Uh, so they're already beginning that process, and they've already been on the ground meeting with people as well. Um, so that's that's That can take a long time, um, and you never you can turn over every stone. Um, but they try to do enough investigations so they're certain that there really is a pattern of violations and as importantly that they understand the root causes of that so that they can develop appropriate remedies. They will then draft a findings report which can also take a long time and then when that findings report is completed and approved within the department they'll have a public announcement of that. And that is where you will see that the, the um, investigation go one of two ways. Either the jurisdiction will agree to cooperate with the Department of Justice and negotiate a consent decree, or the um, jurisdiction will not agree, and the Department of Justice at that point has the option of filing a civil lawsuit against the agency. Um, almost every case, uh, the jurisdiction agrees to negotiate a decree. Um, that process can take another six months to a year, and at the end of that, the parties have a consent decree that they file in court, there's an opportunity for the public to be heard, sometimes called a fairness hearing. And if the judge, uh, you know, finds that everything is above board and, and is satisfied with the decree, the judge will enter that decree as a court order. And then the very long process of implementing that consent decree will ensue. Yeah, I think uh, it occurs to me that the scale of, uh, or the scope rather, of these investigations and what they are setting out to try to prove that there is a pattern or practice of abuse really, really gets at this sort of bad apple uh, defense that we so often hear when news breaks. Uh, and just to, to dwell on the process there. So when the public hears about these investigations, they often are attached with the word sweeping. So there's a, you know, there's a sense of, of this you know, great scale. And then the reports come out and they are, uh, can, be, can be lengthy. And I think for good reason, you, know, you want to marshal as much evidence as possible to, to make your case. Could you give the listeners a, a sense of this scale in terms of resources that go into these investigations of personnel? The time itself is can be longer, but you know just how much resources uh, go, goes into these investigations? These investigations are really resource intensive because, as you noted, it, it, um, this is not an investigation of a single officer or a single incident, usually not even an investigation of a single unit. Um, they're an investigation of an entire department, and they're invest an investigation of many practices, usually many practices within that department. You know, and you don't really have this, not a particularly large staff within the special legation section, which is the section in the Civil Rights Division that does this work. And so you'll, you'll I, I believe when I was there, the Chicago investigation was the largest team I was on. And I think we had about maybe 10 people, which was pretty large. Um, internally, and that's include the uh, the attorneys, our outreach specialists, our paralegals and investigators, interns, like everybody. Um, and then we had a uh, number of outside experts. Most investigations, at least when I was there, and I, I don't have any reason to believe it's different now, are, are closer to a team of four to five uh, individuals on it, um, working on that, plus other cases as well. And so you really do uh, rely a lot on your, the experts that you bring in. You're, I mean, every attorney in this, in this section is an expert to some extent. 
um, or, or quickly will be um, in police practices, but they bring in uh, individuals with that expertise. And like I said, um, people who can crunch the numbers for them, teams of people that may include statisticians, economists, you know, all sorts of people who can sort of really help them make sense, uh, especially now, of um, the, the, especially in a case that involves stop searches and arrests. Um, you know, what are we seeing in these numbers where it might be thousands and thousands of stops and searches that they're evaluating? I mean, that's why it really um, can take so much time to really get the, a lot of, by the way, a lot of the a lot of the effort goes into actually obtaining the, can go into obtaining the information from the jurisdiction. It may not have the information in, in, in sort of usable format. We had situations, for example, we had to actually pay a vendor to get them to release the information to us because they hadn't, they wouldn't release it to the agency because the agency hadn't paid their bills. Um, there's all sorts of obstacles that can, and they can crop up and even try to get the information to evaluate. Um, and then you have to spend a considerable amount of time reviewing the information, analyzing it, analyzing it and writing up your, your findings. Um, and that's in addition to the on-the-ground work of going on ride-alongs with officers, talking with community members, going walking through neighborhoods and seeing you know, what people's experiences have been. Um, it's not at all just a paper review, um, but there is a lot of analysis of data um, accompanied by a real qualitative assessment um, of on-the-ground conditions. You spoke of some obstacles just now, and I think an assumption might be that police departments would be extremely resistant to these types of inquiries or investigations. What has your experience been uh, in sort of the, the cooperativeness or, or not of police departments during a pattern or practice investigation? Um, my experience has been that there is a um, spectrum of a cooperation from department to department. And there's a spectrum of cooperation within each department. Some departments will actually, they have, they have asked you to come in and conduct an investigation, perhaps openly, perhaps not. Um, other departments really don't want you to come in, but they've made the political calculus that it's better to cooperate with you than not. Um, and then other departments are, will fight you tooth and nail all the way. And Sheriff Joe Arpaio from Maricopa County is an, a, a pretty prominent example of that end of the spectrum. Within each department, there are, were always people, regardless of the um, views of the leadership of the department, we always found people who were so happy to see us there and had been waiting for something like this to happen. And we always saw people who were furious that we were there. And, you know, it was going to take, you know, <laughs> a order of the court to get them to even talk to you. Um, so it really, really varies. Generally speaking, there is more uh, cooperation than one might expect. I did civil litigation for a number of years, and I definitely was able to get more information through our pattern of practice investigations where we don't even have subpoena power than I was ever able to get in the course of civil litigation through the through normal discovery. So whether because they feel like they have to cooperate or they actually want to cooperate, there is a fair amount of, you know, resigned, you know, or, or enthusiastic cooperation from jurisdictions. You recently wrote a piece in Lawfare just uh, in early July on the heels of the report that came out of um, the investigation to the Minneapolis Police Department. is an incredibly useful piece. I encourage all listeners to read it. It's called Justice Department Report Reflects Shift in Thinking About Police Reform. And one of the reasons I found it so useful was that you trace a bit of history and a bit of difference between administrations, uh, especially focusing on uh, the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations and sort of their different uses or lack of use in, in the Trump administration's case of um, these types of, of, of administrations. But I want to go back to the beginning, if you'd indulge me in a bit a bit of a history lesson in terms of the the history of the statute that lends authority to these investigations. Um, and, and when was the first pattern or practice investigation and, and what did it look into? That's a great question. Uh, the, the statute was passed in 1994 and it was it was pretty dormant for, for a bit. No one really knew what to do with it. There was even some hesitation. They didn't know where to put it even, and they gave it to the special litigation section, largely because uh, it had the authority to conduct pattern or practice investigations of, of jails and prisons under a statute called CRIPA. And there were, um, it, someone noticed at some point that nothing was really being done with this, and, and I'm not entirely sure what the kerfluffle was, but I do know that a number of investigations were opened on a single day, and not much came of those investigations. 
so I, I'm not sure technically what the first investigation was, but the first real investigation was the investigation of the Pittsburgh Police Department, um, which I believe would have been 1995. And um, that did result in a consent decree. Um, and, if you, and if you go back and look at it, it's very basic, you know, exactly what you would expect. Um, you know, you need better policies and training and oversight and uses of force. And, and, and I think it was force, force focused. Um, not some, but not a lot of recognition of or emphasis on how interconnected um, police practices and management practices are. So um, the role of, of performance evaluations and promotions and of having different units available to respond, that was not part of those very early investigations. And then through the course of that, that was, that was the Clinton era, those investigations started to slowly become a little bit more sophisticated. But what I saw then over the years and captured, tried to capture a little bit in, in my piece for Lawfare was um, that in each administration that's trying anyway, you see sort of uh, a new sort of growth spurt as they've learned from what, what's come before. And, and just a, I think an interesting fact that I learned in preparing for this conversation was that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, or rather correct Ryan Riley in the Huffington Post if he's wrong, that you actually joined the Justice Department around when uh, the statute was passed and, and around when um, these pattern of practice investigations first started. So it's interesting, like, tracing your career and, and the evolution of of the these investigations. Yeah, it's, it has been sort of interesting to me. I When I accepted the job, I was a baby attorney and came in through the honors program uh, just out of a clerkship after law school. And when I accepted the job, I don't believe that that the section even had uh, the authority, this pattern of practice police um, investigation authority. I wanted to go there to um, do their prison and jail work. I was, I was really into international human rights at the time, but I really liked the domestic court system. And so the idea of, of, of sort of really advocating for individuals' fundamental rights, but having the U.S. courts at your, you know, available to you was, was really exciting to me. Um, and so actually when I went to DOJ, I initially really focused on the prison and jail work, but it was, you pretty quickly learned doing that work that most of the people in prisons and jails shouldn't be there. And I, I naturally just sort of started to go upstream a bit and, and, and think more about policing and how they got there. And so, you know, lucky for me, we had the, the statute that allowed me to really look into that and try to, to see um, what was happening, how the police were treating people. Um, and so, yeah, my career has very much uh, run on a parallel to the development of the enforcement of that statute. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I think lucky for you and also lucky for many people that you uh, started looking upstream. Um, I want to fast forward a bit to your experience in leading uh, the the Ferguson pattern of practice investigation. Could you speak a bit about that experience, um, what you found and what your team found and then especially I'm interested in, in, you know, what has happened in Ferguson since um, the report was released and the consent decree was negotiated and uh, agreed upon. Yeah, so Ferguson was a really, um, a, a really profound experience for me because I had been investigating a lot of agencies where they actually had legitimate challenges with public safety, um, New Orleans and Newark you know, other places where they were really, they were trying to fight crime and there are some tensions that get introduced and some difficulties that get introduced that in no way excuse the civil rights violations that were occurring. But it was, it was easier for me to see how that could occur. When we got to Ferguson and it became very quickly apparent that they were using policing for something that had very little to do with public safety. It had a lot to do um, with two things. One was the collection of revenue and really sort of supporting the, the city's budget on the backs of poor people and mostly black people. And also the they were using policing to enforce a racialized social order. They Ferguson had gone from majority white to majority black in a, in a relatively short 
time span. And they were that scared a lot of people, worried a lot of people. And they really saw the police as the way to keep people in line, to teach them how it's done here, how you're supposed to behave. And those two goals dovetailed in a really terrible, terrible way so that they had all of these rules, you know, don't cross the street at right angles. You got to keep your lawn at this height. You've got to have the, we have these occupancy permits. You have to tell us how, not only how many people are living in your apartment, but what their names are. And if there's a different person living there, you can be cited. And they deliberately tried to make their citations higher than any other municipality in, in the county. So just seeing that that confluence of objectives, revenue um, generation, and enforcing this racialized social order really forced me to think about um, the role of policing and the and the role that race plays in how policing has formed and how it's carried out, um, and how and and I learned also that many of these dynamics were were present in some of the agencies I had investigated and hadn't really been attuned to. So that was really important to I me. Mean, we really tried to capture a lot of that in the findings report. And it was really gratifying when the report was released. We were very concerned at the time that it would be overshadowed by the announcement of uh, that, that was made the same day that there would be no criminal charges against Darren Wilson. And certainly that was an important announcement. I, and uh, you know, it was obviously it was important for people to know that. But I didn't want what we found to sort of be lost in that discussion. And we were very pleased that it wasn't, that people were really focused on what we found in this idea um, and, and how brutal that could become because, of course, what people what first drew the nation's and the world's eyes to Ferguson was the response, um, the militaristic response to individuals who were just protesting their treatment. And we helped explain why people were so justified in protesting uh, their treatment, not just the treatment of Michael Brown, but the treatment of the entire community for for so many years. And so that was really gratifying. And then and then very quickly, um, it, we, we negotiated a consent decree. The, 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 the city sat with us and negotiated a consent decree for months. And then at the last minute, tried to pull out of the consent decree. And we had to file a lawsuit against them and litigate for a few weeks or months. And then they eventually capitulated and the consent decree was entered. And it's being carried out there. And there have been some dramatic changes there. But you know, you know the fundamental structure of policing is in many respects the same there. Um, I don't think it's as abusive or harmful, um, but they haven't sort of uh, changed their views on what policing should be, I don't think, as far as I can tell. At least many people in the city uh, leadership have not. Um, but what was really, I think, disappointing to me is for a moment I, after the Ferguson report was released, I felt that the world understood the role that race plays in policing and that other parts of cities play in, in policing and that we need to really focus on this broader, look, look more broadly at what's happening in policing. And that dissipated pretty quickly. Um, Donald Trump was elected and it seemed like we had really, you really wondered what you had achieved. Um, and then I really saw after George Floyd was murdered and the international protests that rose up after that, that allowed me to see, and I think this was really a broader lesson for me. It allowed me to see that all the work that had been done by activists and advocates before, during, and after Ferguson, it, it, it was sort of it had created the the groundwork or you know the the foundation, so that when George Floyd was murdered, you didn't have to start from zero. People already had a, a bit more familiarity, sophistication about these issues, and were able to learn more from the George Floyd incident than they would have learned if they hadn't been educated by all the work of activists and advocates after Ferguson and before George Floyd. So that actually made me feel a little bit better about the work overall, a reminder that you do the work today, but you may not see the the, the outcomes or the fruits of that work for, for years. Um, but you do it and you hope that it's, it's there um, and it will eventually bear fruit. Yeah, that's a great reminder that, you know, 2020 wasn't this spontaneous combustion, but it was, you know, it was sort of shepherded along through points in the road like Ferguson that, you know, led to this growing consciousness among the public. I want to dwell a bit on on some of the patterns of abuse, the types of abuse, constitutional violations, racial discrimination um, that you've noticed in some of your investigations and that are captured so well in the findings of these reports. Uh, in your lawfare piece, you uh, speak a lot about the Minneapolis and Louisville reports. You you drill down on, on some specific 
trends, I think. So, for example, the, the pretext stops, um, First Amendment violations, um, in addition to, you know, racially motivated abuses and searches of other kinds. You talk about how the findings that these reports have are, are, are chilling in part because of their frequency, but also how casually that the, these can occur. So I was hoping you might just drill down on a few of these common abuses that, that you've seen over the years. So I think, again, people are a lot more sophisticated about the kinds of abuses. You know, people know, I mean, the idea that people know what you are talking about when you mentioned what a, pre- a pretext stop or qualified immunity, for example, is, you know, I five years ago, I, I would just not have believed you if you had told me that would ever happen. So I'm, I'm really um, grateful for people's uh, willingness. I think all of us are for people's willingness to sort of engage on these issues and learn just a little bit about what's happening in, in policing. Um, and, and so a lot of this, I think people know more than than they used to. But what, what struck me about both the Louisville and the Minneapolis report, more than anything else, um, was the department's willingness to state clearly that even where police are operating pursuant to law, the law is such that it facilitates violations of individuals' rights. And the pretext stop was is the perfect example of that. And they, they talk about it in both reports that, um, yes, the Supreme Court has said that you may stop someone for one reason, even though your actual motivation to stop them is a different reason, um, and as long as that the reason you stop them is, in fact, a violation, that's reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. But they were, both reports talked about how, how easy it is for officers to use that, that Fourth Amendment shield to stop people for reasons that have nothing to do with public safety, have everything to do with their own stereotypes or biases or just, you know, if they happen to be an officer who's a bully, whatever, whatever they want, for any reason that they'd like. And I think... The idea, the fact that that DOJ was was willing in a in a findings report, two findings reports, to actually call that out and to say, you know, you need, even though our charge is to ensure that policing is constitutional and lawful, we're here to tell you that you need to do more than just tell your officers to abide by the law. Because if that's all you're telling them to do, it leaves the door open for a lot of harmful behavior and a lot of um, behavior that. Will fall. Will will cross that line from legal to illegal, and that idea is a really important one, not only to recognize in the context of stops or searches based on pretext, but in the use of force. Use of force need just be reasonable under the Fourth Amendment, and the way that's been interpreted is is so generous to officers that it really allows a lot of force that is absolutely unnecessary. Doesn't you know? Does isn't needed to protect anyone. Um, and it is incredibly harmful. And so I think that really sets us off on a better path to uh, actually change policing in a way that will result in overall less harm and uh, where the changes that you do make will be more sustainable. Earlier in the conversation and again in your lawfare piece, you, as I mentioned, you trace really well this the evolution of pattern or practice investigations throughout at least uh, the past three administrations. And the I think uh, if I'm representing your argument correctly, the Biden administration seems to reflect perhaps a sort of paradigm shift uh, or, or a broader reckoning with, with ideas of public safety. Could you speak a bit more about that? I'm, I'm thinking also of a trend that you mentioned that um, there's a recognition, for example, that internal accountability mechanisms have, have fallen short and that we need to protect external ones. But there was something I think in reading your your piece that um, you know for someone for anyone who is you know wanting significant police reform that uh, maybe there's something to be hopeful um, about as these pattern or practice investigations in the Biden administration increase in frequency. I thought that was actually I, I think this is the most important thing about both of those reports and about the potential shift um, that we see in the civil rights division um, in these investigations, and that is that there is an acknowledgement that in order to have the kind of policing that we want, uh, and by the kind of policing we want, I mean the kind of policing that is effective at protecting people and that doesn't violate people's rights routinely, you do need to have a broader public safety response. 
it's it was so important for DOJ to take that step forward and not let itself get mired in, you know, the this sort of ridiculous political back and forth, you know, unless you say you're 100% for police, then you're obviously you want to defund them and, and abolish the police. And just to, for them to recognize that you can believe that there is a role for police to play in protecting public safety, but also believe that we need to bring in other public and private actors to play a role in public safety, because right now the police are doing are taking too central a role and taking up too much of that responsibility. And that is the source of a lot of the ineffectiveness, as well as a lot of the constitutional violations that we're seeing. And the way that those two reports talked about that and their, the framing that they used was to focus on the response to persons in behavioral health crisis, people who are, are in mental health crisis or perhaps are, are having a, a, a bad reaction of, because of a drug overdose or whatever. They're having a response, but it is a public health issue, a mental health issue, not so much a criminal issue. And we, we just send police. You know, we don't send police when someone is having a heart attack, but when they're having a mental health crisis as opposed to a physical crisis, we send police. And so their recognition that that's what was happening in these jurisdictions and that was resulting in a pattern of violations and that the city and that violated not only the Constitution, but the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that the answer to that is to broaden out your public safety response, that you have someone to send to those calls rather than simply police well, that was something we had never done in, you know, in the investigations during the Obama administration. The closest we got was probably the Baltimore investigation. But if you look at that findings report, it's really still talking about doing all that work through the police department, through the crisis intervention response of police officers. These two reports for the first time talk about bringing that response outside of the police department and having other city actors respond to those sorts of calls. And that sort of more expansive thinking about what public safety requires, that is how we get to the next level where we have more effective public safety and public safety and policing that doesn't result in violations as frequently as it does now. Yeah, I'm I'm curious your thoughts on how then we translate that into real change, I I guess, at the community level. So, you know, for example, I I think some activists and community members might be forgiven in saying, this is great. You know, this, these admissions are great. The Justice Department is, is finally saying the quiet part out loud or, or coming around to, to things that, you know, community members have known. And yet mostly black and brown people are still being murdered at the hands of police. These abuses persist um, in certain cities and communities. So how do we close that gap? Uh, and I, before you answer, I realize I'm asking you to um, solve an immense <laughs> societal problem. So you can feel free to shut me down here. But uh, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just curious of, of your response to, to some of those criticisms. No, I tilted this windmill every day, so that's perfectly fine. Um, yeah, you're, you're completely right. It's it's not like oh, the DOJ says this every, now. Everything now, just you have to march through, get a consent decree, and everything will be fixed. I, I don't think that at all. I, I've I've been very clear for a very long time now that, you know, DOJ consent decrees are not going to fix policing on their own regardless. Um, They are one part of the solution, one tool in the toolbox. And one of the things that those uh, that consent decrees need to do is to create a lot of space and opportunity for other uh, advocates and actors to make the change they need to make. They need to, DOJ needs to be more cognizant of its, of the potential for it to occupy the field over much and not let enough of that other work take place. And that's one of the things, by the way, that I thought was so encouraging about their focus on First Amendment and the ability of outsiders to have access to information and to record what the police are doing, because that's part of that, you know, creating space for others to do this work. Um, so that's that's absolutely critical. But I think what's important about DOJ acknowledging what activists and advocates have been saying for a while now, and, and many police officers too, for that matter, that we need to look beyond police, you know, to, for a for our public safety response. It's in part that it normalizes it. I've I've been guilty of calling DOJ pathologically moderate in the past, and that when the pathologically mo- moderate part of this work um, says, "Yeah, like this is not this is not radical. This is not you know some sort of out there idea." Get some other people involved. That I think changes the entire conversation and dynamics, and allows other people who might be afraid. Um, you know, might not be not might not be so certain of whether this actually makes sense 
you know, and, and this, I'm not saying this should be the case either, but it is just, it is the case that some people feel safer supporting these sorts of ideas if DOJ has come out and said, yeah, you got to get some behavioral response teams. You can't have police going out to all these things. And we've seen that actually. If you look at polling, this, this group called the Lake Group did polling of of individuals and they found that where people know that there's an alternative to police, like a behavioral health response, they support it. But when they're not aware that there might be an alternative response, for example, to, you know, neighbor disputes or uh, domestic violence, then they want the police there, right? But when you, when the world, when, when the potential for a response is presented to you, it turns out people are actually pretty open to that response not being the police. So DOJ sort of opening that door and starting to allow us to have that conversation, I think, is really helpful and really important and hopefully will and, and I've talked to people who are doing this work completely separately from government, and and they agree that it, it was useful to have DOJ, you know, have these ideas be part of their findings report because it, it, it sort of bolsters the legitimacy of, of what they've been saying all along. Now, for this next question, I'm going to ask you to engage in a bit of speculation. So again, feel free to shut me down there if, if that's not a, a game you like to play. But I'm curious, you know, of what happens if the next administration comes in, perhaps it's the Trump administration, perhaps it's another administration who is not, not so much pro-police as unquestionably pro-police or, you know, completely uncritical of of any, you know, any hard look at, at police practices. Is there a danger of undoing all this work? I mean, you, you mentioned, I think you began to answer this question earlier when uh, you were discouraged at, at developments under the Trump administration, but that actually you were reminded of um, this growing consciousness or the, the, the groundwork that activists and and, you know, and your work at, at, with the Ferguson Report played. But what is the danger of, of just how many steps can be taken back by just the change of administration? I think there's a proven uh, danger of uh, an administration that is hostile to uh, police reform and or protecting people's civil rights from police abuses. And, and the department has in the past tried to guard against that. And I think that's one of the reasons um, why it's important that it be more expansive in the next slew of consent decrees it's about to negotiate. And what I mean by that is when the second George Bush came in after Clinton, we learned that it wasn't a great thing that a lot of our investigations had been resolved with memoranda of agreement. Those agreements are between the parties, nothing's filed in court. And so you had this new administration come in and suddenly the plaintiffs, the civil rights division, weren't so keen on enforcing these agreements. So what we, that was part of the reason you will notice um, under the Obama administration, most of those agreements are are resolved not through memoranda of agreements or memoranda of understanding. They're resolved through consent decrees. Because among other things, what that does is it involves a judge in that equation. And that judge will remain regardless of a change in administration. And we saw that be very important. We, we, we saw, you know, in L.A., there was a, a consent decree and, and the Department of Justice under Bush went in and tried to say the consent decree should be ended. And the judge was like, just said, no, of course, it shouldn't be ended. It hasn't been implemented yet. Uh, we saw the importance. That was the, that was sort of the, the example of why a consent decree was so important. And so we very much, you know, followed that that approach during the Obama administration and that, again, was proven to be very important when uh, we didn't quite get to the consent decree negotiation phase with Chicago and Jeff Sessions, the AG that came in, immediately dropped it. Um, we did barely get to the consent decree, got the consent decree over the finishing line in Baltimore, and DOJ ordered its attorneys to go in and try to rescind that consent decree. And the judge said, no, I'm not rescinding it. So that was one way that the department has already demonstrated in the past that it recognizes the risk. Uh, when a new administration comes in and, 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 how, and has thought about ways to guard against it. We learned more about what can happen during the Trump administration. And that's one of the reasons I think that um, I feel so strongly, and perhaps DOJ also recognizes this, um, about creating that capacity um, through the consent decrees for others to do that work. So, for example, not only through ensuring that people's First Amendment rights are protected, but also by ensuring that as part of a consent decree, uh, the jurisdiction is required to gather a lot of data about what its police officers are doing, to analyze that data, to make it public, so that individuals far beyond the Department of Justice have access to the information they need to assess what their police department is doing and to challenge it if necessary. 
And to bring this conversation back to where we started, what will you be looking for insofar as you have a window into the process of the ongoing Memphis investigation and then eventually in the report? You know, what are you hoping to see, uh, I guess, in, in Memphis and then perhaps also in a broader sense in terms of similar work that the Justice Department might undergo for the remainder of the Biden administration? I think I'm looking for both um, process expansion and uh, substance expansion. And uh, by process expansion, I see, I'm thinking of the need to incorporate communities more, not only in the investigation of a department, but also in the implementation of the consent decree. So community groups and advocates are directly involved with assessing, with defining what success is under a consent decree. They get to decide from the outset, how will we know when we have the kind of policing that we want? You know, that is the role that the community should play. That should not be a role. You know, mayors shouldn't decide that. Chiefs shouldn't decide that. Communities should decide that. So they should be involved in the beginning for setting up those metrics. You know, how will we know when we've succeeded? And then be involved in assessing um, whether the department is there. I would love to see that. It's it is not easy, but it is absolutely the next um, frontier on process. On substance, I would love to see more of uh, what we saw in the Minneapolis and um, Louisville letters in terms of thinking more creatively and expansively about um, a broader public safety response. I was very intrigued to hear Assistant Attorney General Clark say during the announcement of the Memphis investigation that uh, they understood the challenge of fighting uh, violence in Memphis that the city was facing, but they also understood that fighting that kind of crime requires a collaboration of broad groups of community and other actors. And that made me just a bit hopeful that they're actually going to start looking at bringing it really the role that a broader response to even violent crime. So not just mental health, behavioral crises and things like that, but you know the straight up homicides gun violence, you know, that can't just be a police response. Can we incorporate some of that response into our uh, consent decrees and really thinking about ways to do that? And, And also to think about when we do have a police response, how prescriptive can we be to ensure that we have a the police response that is what Rachel, Professor Rachel Harmon calls harm efficient. So we want, we, we recognize that police have a role to play in preventing violence, but we have to make sure that they play that role in a manner that doesn't cause more harm than good, which is exactly, of course, what we saw Tyree Nichols, what Tyree Nichols, you know, made clear that that's what the Scorpion unit was doing. I, I think that's exactly why DOJ decided to go into Memphis. And so I think it's incumbent upon them to really look at how do we encourage the kind of policing that, yes, uh, seeks to prevent violence, but not in a manner that causes more harm than good? Well, if the Justice Department uh, is an indicator of the pathologically moderate, as you've suggested in the past, um, then maybe uh, we can be hopeful that the entire spectrum is is moving in a promising direction when it comes to police reform and, and attitudes on policing. So with that, Christy Lopez, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. And your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. 
ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.